Also, another benefit of globalization is that it sensitizes people to problems in other parts of the world, and that allows all nations to collaborate to solve those problems. Think of what are the benefits of humans working together. Uh, in a sense, globalization is the, the final stage, at least here on Earth, of uh, integrating what used to be separate groups of people. We've always grouped together. We are you know, social animals. Uh, we're doing this on a much broader scale now. Well, I guess for me, who was born and bred in a third world country, I think of it as, um, you know, where what belongs to a small country suddenly becomes, you know, belongs to the whole world. And I see it as a real issue if you're from a poor third world country. Global health care is a critical issue because of the mobility of populations. We all exist in the world, we travel everywhere, people are coming and going constantly, uh, transportation has become uh, so easy that frankly populations are no longer isolated as they have been in the past. So we all need to be very tuned into and very interested in global health issues because they do impact us. Uh, this is not like speaking a different language or having a different religion or having different ways of life. Uh, healthcare is a universal human issue, as are diseases. At least half the people on Earth have at least one worm in their gut, and many of them have a whole lot of worms. Uh, there's all kinds of evidence that early childhood illness, um, we're talking here about chronic illness as opposed to uh, acute illness. Uh, chronic illness uh, affects uh, whole communities, it affects the ability of, of communities to, to educate their children, to, um, to provide economic stability uh, to, to their populations. If there were to be, and as a historian I have to say in my own predictive way, there will be some sort of global epidemic. Um, what we can do to help people in other countries will, you know, to, to deal with an epidemic there will protect us here. And so giving, helping other countries to provide vaccines, to provide ways to contain epidemics is both an act of you know, humanitarian good, but it's also part of that global network of public health that would then you know, be good for us. Good evening, I'm Professor Lloyd Ambrosius. Uh, it is my pleasure as chair of the program committee to welcome you to the Ian Thompson uh, Forum on World Issues. Uh, founded by Ian Jack Thompson uh, and later named in his honor, uh, the forum is designed uh, to engage both the University of Nebraska community and the general public uh, in important issues that affect uh, all of us in the contemporary world. Our theme for this year is Globalization's Promise. Our speaker tonight will address an important aspect of this theme in her lecture on betrayal of trust, critical issues in global healthcare. Lori Garrett is one of the American 
uh, premier authorities on health care and disease prevention and a powerful advocate for a forceful response to threats uh, to human health. Currently a senior fellow for global health at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York City. She is the author of The Coming Plague, Newly Emerging Diseases in a World Out of Balance, and Betrayal of Trust, The Collapse of Global Public Health. She is the only person ever to have been awarded all three of the big P prizes in journalism, the Peabody, the Polk twice, and the Pulitzer. After the lecture, you will have the opportunity to ask questions of our speaker by writing them on cards provided by the ushers. Now join me in welcoming Lori Garrett to Nebraska. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you to the Thompson family for their sponsorship of this wonderful series. Uh, because some of the slides are a little dense and we're gonna cover a lot of terrain in a very short amount of time, I wanna give you the main take home message right up front. We've spent the last 10, 12 years building this massive enterprise that we call global health. It is one of the most extraordinary things we've seen humanity do in a very long time, uh, with people in the rich world saying we should make resources available to people in the poor world, and we should conquer disease crises that have been around for millennia, as well as new ones like HIV-AIDS. Uh, all of this is now threatened to crash asunder almost overnight uh, because of budgetary discussions underway at this moment on Capitol Hill. It is a paltry piece of the U.S. budget, but if it is removed, it is more than half of the global health budget in total. So with that prelude, having told you in advance what your take-home message is. Uh, brace yourself, fasten your seatbelts, adjust your glasses, and get ready. We're going to start off talking about the key dilemmas that we all face as a global health concerned population around the world. The first is that we had exponential growth in the amount of money contributed for global health in less than 10 years, but it was urgent, it was sloppy, huge complexity in terms of what the donors did and how they expected to be able to behave, highly biased towards treatment of HIV, thereby medicalizing the effort, immediately impacted in 2008 by the world financial crisis with ongoing tension in the area amid an inflationary food spiral that is challenging even the available resources. There are, of course, a host of other crises capturing the attention of President Obama and his counterparts, and we have a new budgetary crisis on Capitol Hill. So let's start with the sloppiness. We went from a 1998 paltry amount of money dedicated to global health to a fantastic amount. It grew so fast that it is an incredibly sloppy mess, this thing that we call global health. In 1990, if you 
included everything from food support to child education as being related to global health. It was about a $5.6 billion enterprise, classic public health, safe water, vaccines, prevention programs. Only about 300 million of it went to fight HIV AIDS worldwide. So it was a classic public health program based on principles that were decades old. All the while, we, had, we could be considered guilty of global negligence, having ignored the steady expansion of the HIV-AIDS pandemic, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. As the death toll mounted, the World Health Organization actually walked away from the HIV problem, shut down its program, leaving no real international leadership. So in 1995, the UN system said this, this is uh, absolutely incorrect, we have to do something, and they created this umbrella organization, the United Nations AIDS Program, encompassing seven different UN agencies. Uh, initially conceived at a time when there were no treatments to speak of and when HIV was just exploding out of control amid massive government denial with most countries ignoring the problem. We now flash forward, we live in a G20 world. It is a world in which uh, a completely different kind of superstructure is calling the shots. India, China, Brazil in the driver's seat. How do we go from there to here? How are these two very different elements linked? Let's look at today. First of all, the United States is responsible for 58% of all funds donated to fight HIV AIDS worldwide. So if that 58% were to disappear, we would see an enormous burden placed on the host countries, on the poorest countries in the world, probably not to be picked up by the other donor nations which are also hurting financially at this time. We saw a steady increase and it continues with support from such unexpected places as the World Economic Forum, uh, Bill Clinton's post-presidency support, very little during his presidency, a great deal after, of course, Bill Gates, uh, Tony Blair, and the rock star Bono. All of this pushed our overseas development assistance budget, of which global health is a piece, uh, quite dramatically, and the whole world community stepped up so that we're now looking at about a $26, $27 billion enterprise that we call global health, up from, remember, $5 billion in 1998. As far as what we're giving towards, the lion's share of it is to HIV and its al allied sexually transmitted diseases with support for water system development coming in second. Most of that money is coming from the Europeans. Uh, you'll see many things that are underserved on that list, if you can read it from the audience, and that is a problem and has been a source of some tension as the HIV budget has expanded. The second problem is this issue of complexity. This is the United States donor apparatus and cross-connectedness circa 2008. Insane. You cannot possibly ask a recipient country to have any idea what agency they're talking to in the U.S. government, where the money came from, how that's related to some other funding source. I mean, I can barely make sense of it. 
even if you boil it down to the key elements or streams from which U.S. money comes, it is still remarkably complex and requires a high level of sophistication for the recipient to comprehend how and where the money is coming from. OGAC, by the way, the dark blue, is the largest chunk that used to be called PEPFAR, or the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. So in a short while, we've gone from basically only WHO leaving the field to this plethora of organizations in what we call global health, um, literally thousands of them, many of which did not exist in the 1990s or only came into existence like the Bill and Melinda Gates Fund at the very end of the 1990s or the Clinton Global Initiative, the International AIDS Vaccine Initiative. Um, almost all of these are relatively new players and you have no real clear coherence between them or governance of what they do, how they operate on the ground, how they operate and compete between each other, add to that 60,000 new non-governmental organizations just for HIV in Africa. It's astounding. If you're on the receiving end of it, you have no idea who all these Americans are walking in the door saying, I'd like to help you, or whether what they're offering is really what you consider help. Um, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is a very new player. It's really only been on the field since 2000 to speak of. However, in 1999, they gave their first real dispersal. And today, they are the biggest private source of support for global health in the whole world. That dark orange section is all health of their $22 billion in grants. Health garnered $13.2 billion up to the end of last year substantial, extraordinary infusion of money. The Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria is a very new experiment, only created in 2002 with absolutely no money. The idea was that countries could basically submit grants for how they would like to tackle these three diseases, and they would go through scientific review. Those grants deemed worthwhile would be awarded. Within just six years after its founding, it was dispersing $2.3 billion annually. It looked like such a success story, but suddenly this year, donor support is disappearing, and it has a $5 billion shortfall for what it considers its bottom line budget. When we look at how the United States compares to the other key players, major donors, uh, for all forms of international assistance combined, for HIV AIDS um, going to the Global Fund, you can see that we are about a third of the Global Fund's support. So again, were the United States to walk away, the Global Fund would be deeply damaged. The other big issue is that we have medicalized what we used to call public health. When Obama took office, um, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief had had tremendous expansion, it, but it had no real transparency. We had no accountability. How was the money spent? What were the success rates? How many people were actually provided services that lasted uh, well after their onset? Um, the National Academy of Sciences said this isn't good enough. You have to do a better job. So. Barack Obama's administration inherited this very bold program created by President George Bush and really at the White House's initiative. But what it had been was a program built based on nothing but cottage industries, 
tiny little NGOs here, there, and everywhere, scattered all over uh, sub-Saharan Africa and other poor parts of the world, um, each of which might have been doing a great job, but had never demonstrated the ability to scale up to real capacity, had no real financial models, no management skills, um, often no real accountability for how they spent their money. They were accustomed to being little family cottage industry operations of, of do-gooders trying to do the right thing, but not prepared to take on an entire nation. So where are we? We're, we've seen the numbers of HIV cases roughly plateau, but not go down. We've not succeeded in conquering the spread of this disease, though we have now more than 5 million people worldwide in the poor world receiving HIV treatment. Overwhelmingly, our efforts have been targeted to treatment, keeping people alive. What we thought was going to be a simple effort in 2003, or at least the Bush administration thought so, because all it involved was handing out pills for people to take every day for the rest of their lives, is turning out to be hugely complicated. One of the problems is the lack of absorption capacity in the host countries. Money goes unspent because even the NGO intermediaries and the host countries themselves lack the infrastructure support and the personnel to be able to rapidly spend the money we're sending their way. That we didn't have a gold standard. What is absolute best HIV care? What does it look like? What are we trying to achieve country by country? We didn't even have aspirational targets except the Millennium Development Goals, which are uh, the United Nations targets, but do not specifically address what you're trying to accomplish what you're trying to achieve. So we were spending all this money, expanding this huge effort based on cottage industries with no clear goals. And the longer everybody got into the operation, the more they realized they were really getting into the business of primary care, primary medicine, which is where we have never been before. Because what we were doing before with global health was public health. It was basically prevention efforts, preventing disease. And now all of a sudden, here we are managing a chronic disease, which, if successful, is keeping individuals alive for 20 or 30 years of daily medication and regular maintenance. So do you see what happened here? In 10 years' time, we went from about a $5 billion enterprise that was classic public health, oriented around things like providing safe drinking water, vaccinating children, um, taking care of mosquitoes, uh, doing what we needed to control the exposures to disease, lowering the probability of people becoming infected with disease, and all of a sudden, bingo, there we are in the business of healthcare delivery, where we've not really been before, not in any way for the United States or any other elements of the global health donor community. So overnight, without any real conscious strategic thought, we medicalized public health. We turned it into medical care. And all of a sudden, we discovered two giant obstacles of lack of healthcare workers in these countries because of decades of under support for their health systems and the lack of such basic infrastructure as roads to get people to the clinics. The healthcare worker crisis is quite serious. We're short 4.3 million healthcare workers worldwide, a million for sub-Saharan Africa. It is worse than that. It's that what we have is highly skewed to practicing in the rich world and to practicing in urban centers. So whether you're in rural Nebraska or rural Malawi, they are underserved for healthcare workers. 
And especially, of course, if you're in that rural Malawi setting or Zambia or KwaZulu-Natal, South Africa, where healthcare workers are indeed a scarce commodity. And we're not just talking doctors here, dentists, nurses, pharmacists, all aspects of healthcare. So let's remind ourselves, we plunged into medicalizing this thing we call global health, and we don't have healthcare workers. So we're, we're, we're clear about this. We understand what we've done. Well, the World Bank and the International Monetary System have another concern, IMF. And their concern is this thing that's called the moral hazard argument among economists. The concern is that if more than half of the financial support for a program you're doing comes from outsiders, who's really controlling the program? Who's calling the shots? And do you feel, as the recipient, that you have a stake in the success of the program, that you have ownership, and that it follows your political directions. Well, with PEPFAR, the Bush administration said, here's the money, but by the way, as far as we're concerned, prevention is abstinence and being faithful within marriages, uh, which highly skewed prevention activities all over sub-Saharan Africa. The other problem is that none of these programs imagined an exit point. We weren't building thinking, we're going to give money now, and this is building an enterprise from which we can eventually walk away, having left it with dignity in the hands of an able, well-skilled, and trained country leadership. Along comes the world financial crisis. And boom, the stock market goes down, and panic sets in across economies all over the world. And suddenly, the, the uh, global health community starts wondering what's going to happen. Well, immediately you saw an impact in certain key poor countries. And it, it really boiled down to all the ancillary aspects of the health systems suddenly had no money. And they had to make it up somehow. So you had, you had uh, hospitals literally saying, you cannot bury your dead. You cannot remove your dead from our morgue until you pay the hospital bill. And you had more and more health settings where they were saying, we won't let you in unless you can pay up front the hospital bill. But one of the interesting things is that the world financial crisis, and this takes us back to an earlier slide about the G20, was really only our crisis in the rich world and the crisis of the very poor world. But for the emerging market world, it's not been a crisis at all. In fact, for China, India, Brazil, and so on, it's been quite a boon. They've grown, but they're not giving away money. They're not supporting global health. Now, add to it an inflationary spiral for food prices, putting tremendous pressure on poor populations all over the world. In fact, it goes all the way back to 1990. We've actually seen the number of people highly dependent on subsistence level support for food increase, um, probably now exceeding a billion human beings on planet Earth, um, roughly one out of six human beings on the Earth today. Um, and this was exacerbated severely by the March uh, 2008 huge inflation that went out of control, especially hard felt for rice all over the world. We felt it as a pocketbook pinch here. But as World Bank President Robert Zolich told us, for many people it pushed them back from almost able to say they're coming out of poverty to sinking desperately backwards 
into poverty once again. So that we've seen the numbers of people at subsistence level increased further by the huge expansion in prices um, throughout 2008 and into early 2009. Hard hit was Kenya, Pakistan, um, some key uh, countries in um, sub-Saharan Africa. And all of this uh, spiraled uh, into ever worse conditions. We saw food riots all over the world as even the mere rumor of a giveaway of, of rice would cause stampedes, um, people literally crushed to death in an attempt to attain food. And during that very time, our commitment the United States to support agricultural development that could render people no longer in need of donated food supplies decreased. Well, now we have another in food inflation spiral. It's really in its early stages now. It is already at record levels for key crops, corn and wheat chiefly. And there is tremendous concern. The G20 has proven absolutely incapable of agreeing on the time of day on this problem. And if you look at the dark blue lines, you'll see 2010 heading up towards 2011 prices. As you can see, um, by the end of 2010, corn was approaching 2008 highs. It has now surpassed it. What has kept us from having riots is that rice is not really terribly inflating right now. The 2008 riots were all about rice. But so far, production of rice is very high, particularly in South Asia. And we don't have a crisis on our hands, but we did in 2008, and it sparked riots across the Philippines, across much of Southeast Asia. You had countries shutting their borders and refusing to export uh, so that their neighbor countries were starving. So as I said, rice inflation is only about 12 to 13 percent right now in most of the world. That's the good news. But corn has skyrocketed in just seven months. Uh, eight months by 61, almost 62%, and it continues to go up. There is no sign of a downturn. Similarly, wheat prices skyrocketing 66%, in some countries, 300%, um, notably in the Middle East, where we saw mothers in the streets protesting their governments because of the high price of wheat. Now, where is this going? Well, we're only going to see the demand increase because population is increasing. So we've got to offset that. But it's not just that the numbers of human beings is increasing, it's that more and more human beings, thankfully, are entering the middle class. But with coming into the middle class comes a net caloric intake increase and a greater demand for meat, which puts far greater demand on general resources, especially water. And so we're seeing a, a huge demand cycle that's only going to deepen. Meanwhile, that we are putting another kind of pressure on our arable land, and that is for biofuels. Call it rapeseed, call it corn, call it sugar. Whatever it is that we're producing to burn in our cars uh, is taking an ever greater toll on the ecology of farming. And this is true all over the world. Now, the good news is that just in the last two weeks, there's been an announcement in Science Magazine of a major breakthrough to figure out how to use enzymes to break down um, switchgrass, which is prairie grass, to, pro to create what's called cellulosic ethanol. This is the smart way to go for ethanol. It is safe for the ecology. Switchgrass is indigenous to the prairie states. Let me just go back for a moment. And as you can see, the, um, 
gallons per acre ratio is extraordinary. It's about 1,000 gallons per acre of switchgrass versus 328 gallons per acre from corn and a, a far better carbon footprint. Um, corn for ethanol is heavily subsidized right now in the United States, but wouldn't it be great if we could switch here in Nebraska and elsewhere in the farm country to rotating our crops between switchgrass and corn, corn for humans, switchgrass for the cars. Now why is agricultural investment so low? I'm talking about investing in teaching people how to farm right. Because in most of the poor world it's women's work. And most of our foreign aid has gone to giving food to people at great cost rather than teaching them to grow their own food with greater efficiency and providing them with the tools so that they're self-reliant. In fact, we've skewed our giving so tremendously that when the Food for Peace law passed in 1954, uh, the intent was to get everybody to a point where they didn't rely on donated foods, but we went the opposite way. Now the uh, food program under Obama calls for switching towards uh, providing the ability to farm on your own and raise your own necessary uh, caloric intake. Uh, again, it's about reversing a, an incorrect trend over time. Meanwhile, we're fighting for time because we're losing arable land right and left, and the fastest rate of loss is in China, which is also the largest population, hungry, huge middle class, great demands. We had an additional hit this year with the droughts and fires in Russia and Ukraine that led both countries to cap exports on wheat, record floods that put an area in Pakistan and India underwater that was larger than all of Western Europe, destroying their wheat crops, and some of their rice production. And now, most recently, a flood so massive that it was larger than all of Great Britain, Germany, France, and Italy combined that has destroyed sugar and wheat production and rice in Australia. If you combine these, you can see that our first big uh, surge in food prices was driven by um, demand, um, the failure to, or the demand to make biofuels, the value of the US dollar to some degree, and market speculation, which I've not really discussed much, but in speculation in the commodities market. Now you add rising oil prices, extreme weather conditions, uh, such as the fires in uh, Ukraine and Russia, and the disappearance of arable land, and you can see a steady upward trend. So the demand went to the G20, solve this. You're the only global mediator, solve this. And the G20 in 2008, at the leadership of Barack Obama, demanded a $22 billion investment in improving uh, agricultural production. Only 400 million of that has materialized. I mean, we're not even on the right decimal point. And now food prices are higher than they were in 2008. Um, some countries are now starting to stockpile food, refusing to put it in the global trade market. Others have issued export bans for specific uh, food commodities, and that has been discouraging uh, production domestically because you can't get a real good price. You can't sell overseas. Even we have failed to meet our commitments on food. Obama pledged $3.5 billion. Congress has only approved $66 million for the World Bank Program for Agricultural Development. Next problem. Too much on our plate. 
a lot to distract us, whether it was trying to meet the Millennium Development Goals, the earthquake in Haiti, uh, Pakistan's floods, Afghanistan's floods, or war, the Iraq war, um, ongoing fights to counter terrorism, um, and more recently, the uprisings and revolutions and perhaps civil war in the Middle East. Let me take one of them, what we learned from swine flu H1N1, which exploded in Mexico in 2009 and prompted a global intervention. We learned, thankfully, it was a mild virus, because if it had been the real thing, we would have been in deep trouble. And one of the big things we learned was that WHO's entire staging system for deciding when something is a pandemic warranting special concern was based on H5N1, the bird flu, which was highly virulent but not spread very far. So they went by geography. Well, overnight, H1N1, which was a wimpy virus, was indeed global. That forced them to have to call a pandemic alert, set in motion a whole set of systems for basically a wussy virus. But it was a teaching moment. It taught us a lot about our failure to cooperate as a global community, that we could not make vaccine fast enough. We could never make vaccine for 6.5 billion human beings. We didn't know when something was a pandemic, and we have real problems with global solidarity, which basically collapses in the face of a pandemic. How will we respond when a real one emerges that is truly deadly, such as the bird flu? Now, bird flu first emerged in the 1990s in China. It was covered up at the time. In 1997, it surfaced in Hong Kong, taking the lives of a handful of people and forcing the destruction of the entire poultry supply of Hong Kong. Since 2003, when it reemerged, it has been steadily mutating. It's carried by migratory birds in the Asia Flyway, which generally land in Lake Qinghai. And we, in 2005, saw another mutational event with this virus, broadening the range of birds it could infect dramatically which led to infections in Siberia, and another mutational event in Uznur Basin, at, which is the major migratory site in Siberia. And now the virus is capable of infecting birds that go all over Europe, all the way down into northern Africa and the Middle East. The evolutionary spiral of this virus is quite dramatic. The tree is hugely diverse for such a young virus. And there's great reason to be concerned that this virus may mutate to a form that is easily human-to-human -human transmissible. Our basic control of it is control of domestic poultry supplies in poor countries. But the, most of these farmers are not rewarded when their flocks are destroyed. And the destruction is devastating. I spent time with a farmer in Bangladesh who lost everything when bird flu appeared in his flock, he shared these pictures with me of the hemorrhage of the birds and the pain that is produced in them. And he wept as he described the death of his flock of commercial chickens. Um, the most places in the world, when a farmer loses everything, he is not compensated. Now we have an additional issue. We have a country that wants a smaller budget and wants to pay down our debt and deficit. And doing it at the expense of global health will not get us very far, since it is less than 1% of our entire federal budget. Nevertheless, it is a 1% without political support. It breaks down overwhelmingly to be about HIV, malaria, and tuberculosis, uh, with uh, the rest of the global health problem representing about 19%. 
It also is overwhelmingly about sub-Saharan Africa, the neediest part of the planet, and the part heavily, most heavily um, affected by the HIV pandemic. Um, South Africa is, our, is one of our top recipients. The government is in the process of trying to take over most of the responsibility itself. But South Africa, it may be the richest country on the African continent. It is still a very poor country by world standards. Sub-Saharan Africa gets about 68% of our support and about 68% of the global burden of HIV. By sector, we have given most of the money for direct support of HIV services, speaking of the HIV money, uh, with the Global Fund getting the second big chunk, and from OGAC or PEPFAR, malaria comes in. Third, most of that is bed net distribution and treatment of children. Funds have increased steadily, but more modest increases in recent years reflecting concern about the world economy and our own national budget. And this $9.6 billion is for this year. It is now under challenge on Capitol Hill. The United States came under a lot of pressure to reach this magical figure of 0.7% of GDP donated for global health and foreign assistance. Uh, we now exceed that, and we are one of the only countries besides the United Kingdom and Norway that does so. We're at 0.83% of our national income donated for global health. That means that we're one of the good guys in this picture right now in the wealthy world. If you combine uh, what is given, the BMGF is that, that dark green color is the Gates Foundation. And the bilateral development, meaning country to country giving, is the dark blue lion's share of all giving. And most of that is the USA. If you look at giving that is combines the Gates Foundation, which is in the sort of charcoal color, the Global Fund, which is in the pale green, and the United States government in the dark blue, you see where the ball game is. It is us, we are it, we should be proud, wave the American flag and say we're saving lives. We give about 58% of all dollars for HIV support from the United States taxpayers, 52% for all global health combined, and Bill Gates is 68% of all private giving. Yay, USA. Yay, USA. But it means that the two Washingtons are calling the shots, Seattle and Washington, D.C. For a while, we said, all these things that most of you probably can't read are our job. The world needs to deal with 2.6 million people affected newly each year by HIV. It's the leading cause of death of women of reproductive age. 800,000 people killed a year by malaria. Nine million a year developing tuberculosis. A billion a year dying of neglected tropical diseases. 358,000 women a year dying in childbirth. 250 million women who want to avoid their pregnancies with contraception on and on. Is that our responsibility? No says the new head of the House Foreign Operations Committee, Ileana ross Leighton, representative from Florida, who says global health is misplaced priorities. What is our return on that investment, she asks. She would zero out the global health budget. We have similar sentiments occurring in other major donors. The number two in the world is the British government, and they have cut 16 countries out this month from their donor recipient list. 
um, and are greatly constricting their mission in terms of global health. Now, most of the governments at the receiving end are increasing their own commitments. We've seen it steadily jump. Even in the poorest sub-Saharan African countries, they are trying to pick up more and more of the health burden of their own people, but they cannot make it without help from the outside. There simply isn't enough money there. President Obama, a couple weeks ago, put out his budget proposal for fiscal year 2012, which begins on October 1st, 2011. He would cut some programming at the Centers for Disease Control, but overall would invest $9.8 billion in what he's calling the Global Health Initiative. Of that, the biggest increases would go for family planning, which was um, greatly decreased during the Bush administration years, for maternal health, meaning pregnant women and associated with pregnancy, and child health, a huge increase of a grossly underserved uh, area for a long time. And contrary to popular opinion, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Iraq do not represent a huge percentage of our Overseas Development Assistance, or ODA. Um, and health does not represent a huge portion of overall overseas development assistance. So hacking at any one piece, what do you get? The GOP 2012 proposal would cut $1.5 billion out of our total global health initiative funding. That would include a billion additional cuts. In addition to that, cut out of the NIH in their specific global health programs, that's the National Institutes of Health, a nearly uh, three-quarters of a billion cut from the CDC's global health budget, which would pretty much zero it out uh, for everything except emergency response to outbreaks. Uh, three, three, virtually zero out the family planning support, cutting $327 million out of that budget, <clears throat> and cut a quarter of a billion out of the Food and Drug Administration's budget. Uh, much of it for inspecting food and drugs coming from overseas, which, by the way, is 80% of our food. Now, there's also a battle over what's called the Continuing Resolution, or CR11, that affects the current budget right now, 2011. The uh, recently elected Congress said they would cut $100 billion out of that budget right now, including um, $889 million for the Food for Peace program, $56 million from the CDC's Global Health program, $300 million from the NIH HIV effort um, to completely eliminate Project BioShield to protect us from bioterrorism, most of international peacekeeping operations, a quarter of a billion out of USAID, most of the State Department's Global Health and Child Survival program, and the list goes on. Given that the FY 2011 budget is $3.8 trillion, and all of the cuts represent 1% of that budget. Consider that the global health piece they would eliminate, though it would be devastating for global health, is 0.04% of that budget. Recently, just last week, it was leaked that uh, Goldman Sachs had done an assessment of what the FY11 GOP budget cuts would mean. They say it would cost 1.2 million American jobs and actually shrink our GDP. Uh, by 1.5 to 2%. So what's the wisdom in this? Unclear, but a political promise must be fulfilled. So the challenge is we've created massive expectations in the poor world, 
and huge dependency. They're not able to keep all these people on treatment. They're not able to keep a malaria at bay and so on without our continued support. That includes four million people we've put on antiretroviral drugs to treat HIV and a huge medicalized public health scene. If we cut it off, it's medical malpractice. So let's think about what we're doing as we look at this picture of the largest morgue in Haiti. Is it our responsibility? Do we have a shared mission? Can we get out of a charity mode into building something fundamental that lasts after we leave, that saves lives into the 21st century without our continued taxpayer support? We can't walk away yet, but we have to have an end game in sight because the easy part is to give, the hard part is to sustain. And finally, a little shameless advertising. I do have a new book coming out in May. I hope you all look at Amazon.com and consider taking a look at I Heard the Siren Scream, How Americans Responded to 9-11 and the Anthrax Attacks. I thank you, and I'll be happy to take your questions. Uh, while we're waiting and while uh, Susan Lawrence is uh, sorting questions that, that come to her. Uh, let me start with some questions that come from uh, students, from the uh, Thompson Scholars. Uh, first, uh, what disease uh, should be our top priority for attempting uh, to eradicate or prevent? Well, right now we're on the cusp of eradicating polio. We ought to finish the job. We have a long sordid history of setting out to conquer diseases and then growing tired of the battle and tired of the cost and walking away from the field. We did this with malaria. Few people realize that when John F. Kennedy was president of the United States, uh, the two new entities for fighting malaria had proven wildly successful in the uh, World War II Pacific arena, and that was chloroquine, the drug that treats malaria, and uh, DDT, the pesticide that kills the mosquitoes that carry malaria. And we, they were so successful, there were no drug-resistant uh, parasites, and there were no uh, DDT-resistant mosquitoes to speak of. So uh, public health advocates went to Congress in, I believe, 1961, and asked uh, for a budget to, to go all over the world as America to eliminate malaria from the planet and made tremendous headway. I mean, they, they, they completely got rid of all European malaria, all Japanese malaria, all malaria in North America. They were narrowing malaria down to just the Amazon region of Latin America and certain key pockets in Southeast Asia and Africa. The, the battlefield was just resonating with the possibility of success. And the five-year endpoint came, and Congress said, well, we told you you had five years to do it, no more money. And boom, into the vacuum, all over the world, came drug-resistant malaria and DDT-resistant mosquitoes. And it not only uh, was defeated, it was worsened, so that in many parts of the world, malaria became a very serious uh, crisis that it had not been before. We cannot allow that to happen with polio. We're down now to a handful of countries with active circulating polio, but they're tough countries. 
Pakistan, India, uh, huge, complex, politically difficult places to work. Uh, a, a fairly active pocket in Angola, I think that one can easily be defeated. Handful of other places. We can't walk away from this battle now. Okay, another question from the same group of students. Uh, if health care is a fundamental human right, how can it be paid for? <laughs> how do you pay for health? Well, I think you have to divide that into two pieces. The first is how do you pay for public health? And the other is how do you pay for medical care? And they're very different questions. In most of the wealthy world, we adequately pay for public health, or at least almost adequately, with tax dollars. And it is considered a part of essential services alongside our fire department, our police department, and so on. Of course, I don't know if that will continue to be the case because we are in quite an anti-government mood in America right now and anti-taxation and we see more and more cities cutting back even their fire and police departments so public health may be in trouble here in the United States. But in most of the world, public health is dealt with by a combination of the direct support of governments, the respective government, and various kinds of donor institutions. Medical care is a whole other ball of wax. When you talk about medical treatment, whether it's for cancer or a broken leg, uh, now you're talking real dollars. Now you're jumping out of the, we could solve it with 30 billion a year to, we can't even get to it with a trillion a year. And there, is, there are some models of countries that are doing reasonably well with medical care delivery for their populations. Uh, at the current time, um, the vast majority of the world is doing quite poorly, and I would include the United States in that. And it's going to get much harder because we're now hitting that demographic shift as more and more of the world is enjoying a kind of globalization of the economy, more and more people entering middle class means more and more people with long life expectancies likely to live long enough to suffer from cancer, cardiovascular disease, and so on. And we have a global obesity problem that is being felt even in very poor countries now, so that you're seeing an increase in the early onset uh, chronic disease problems such as diabetes. So these are going to be the challenges in the future. There's a United Nations General Assembly special session in September to debate and discuss what the world can do about the rise of the non-communicable, non-contagious diseases um, all over the world, such as diabetes and heart disease, and who will pay for all of this? We can't even figure out how we will pay for it, and we're the richest country in the world. Uh, let me insert a question that comes from the audience, uh, which I think is a nice follow-up to the one you just dealt with. Uh, if we can't afford to feed all the people on Earth, why should we spend so much money to save lives from disease to have them starve to death? That's the most cynical question. <laughs> Can Mr. Malthus or Ms. Malthus, who's the Malthusian in the audience? I, I do believe the original Malthusian essay answers that question. I don't think I need to entertain it. Okay. Um, is human intervention in medical 
uh, and global health issues counterproductive to overpopulation? You know, it's a similar Well, that's kind of the same question. question. I mean, again, it's asking, um, you know, if they're, if they're just going to overpopulate the world, shouldn't we just let disease kill people off? How cynical can you be? And let me tell you why that's really crazy. Let's look at it the other way. Sometimes people ask me, isn't disease just a corollary of overpopulation? And I have to say to them, you know, where do you see the highest life expectancy in the United States today? New York City. You want overpopulated? I'll show you overpopulated. How about another great one? Super densely populated, Amsterdam. Tremendous achievements in life expectancy. You want overpopulation? Try Tokyo. Highest life expectancy metropolis in the world. It's not the number of people that dictates the likelihood of disease. It's how the people live in the space they're in. Are they living healthy or are they living in squalor and deprivation? Um, I think anybody who, who believes that the way to deal with increasing human population is to allow diseases to run rampant deserves to get those diseases. Uh, another question from the Thompson scholars. Uh, what are the economic incentives to giving aid to global health initiatives? The economic incentives. Right. Well, first of all, we're, we're, we've globalized our whole scale of manufacturing and production all over the world. So uh, if you're running a business that of any real size now, you're on the airplane a lot. And you're flying into all these places. And if you want cheap labor, you're putting them in very poor countries. Uh, so you are yourself at risk if malaria is rampant in an area you're doing business in, if schistosomiasis is in all the water supply, if uh, people are, uh, your, your labor force is 30 or 40 percent HIV positive and untreated and therefore uh, sick all the time. Um, we, what used to be 20, 30 years ago, uh, the tropical diseases located off in remote parts of the world are now our diseases as well. I'll remind you of West Nile virus, uh, confined to the West Nile region, Sudan, Uganda, Lower Egypt, until uh, 1999, when for reasons we've still not figured out, it emerged in New York in something as opposite from the West Nile as you could possibly imagine, New York City, and has now spread to 48 of 50 US states, um, and is now a seasonal permanent feature in our ecology. Uh, it would have been nice if we could have controlled West Nile at its source, rather than find ourselves victim to it here. Now fortunately, West Nile is not uh, a super lethal disease. It does kill people, but it doesn't kill a lot of people. Um, what it has really killed and wiped out is a lot of our bird species. Um, and you've probably all noticed, those of you old enough to remember before 1999, uh, when there were crows, lots of crows in the sky. And crows turn out to be highly vulnerable to West Nile virus. So we have a stake, an economic incentive in controlling these problems. I think the other clear one is a true pandemic would be economically devastating. It would bring down this whole house of globalization cards because the just-in-time delivery system on which everything that is globalization is based um, 
collapses with the lack of global solidarity. As soon as countries start saying, they have disease, don't let them in, or shut the airports down, or control the ports and don't let those people off those ships, well then our entire just-in-time delivery system falls to pieces. And you want economic incentive, boy, there's one. Uh, why does China you know, not contribute more to global health? Good question. In fact, China is a big recipient of global health money. They actually receive more than a billion dollars from the global fund, which I think is insane. I mean, I think the first big step towards uh, improving our ability to stretch these dollars further in this time of financial constriction is to tell China and India, take care of your own. Stop putting your hand out. I mean, China, the fastest growing economy on the planet, it's inexcusable that they would ex demand any external funding for global health. Now, you ask them to donate, whew, that's a whole other ball game. And they're not, they're not even there yet. Um, India gave something like $100 million total as a sort of gesture of maturing as a nation. But they received, uh, you know, almost $2 billion. Uh, from outside sources to support their health efforts. So uh, we're, we're still a long ways from the emerging market countries, uh, Brazil, India, China, and so on, uh, understanding that becoming rich and powerful has global obligations associated with it. Uh, does our domestic health distribution prob problem interact at all with the huge global health problem that you outlined? Oh, certainly, um, and the, the most obvious interaction point is, is the immigrant population. Uh, when you see diseases emerging that you haven't heard of and you don't know how to pronounce and you don't know quite what they are, it's often because of uh, immigrants that are unable to obtain health insurance and are living here in the United States and are part of our labor force, our workforce, and yet excluded from many of our uh, protective services or afraid to t take, make use of them out of fear of deportation. That you typically see this most acutely in the southwest of the United States, uh, Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, California, Nevada. They ha not only have large immigrant populations, but also um, uh, very aggressive immigration services so that the, the level of fear of engaging with the health system is very high. And, uh, people generally don't take advantage of the health system until they're very, very, very sick. And that makes them a greater cost and a greater risk to others. Um, this, a good example of this is our constant battle with tuberculosis. We have domestic spread of TB, and it's from American to American, but we have introduction of new TB strains often coming from the outside, especially from Russia and Ukraine, uh, and often drug-resistant strains. We've also seen some drug-resistant HIV strains introduced from the outside via visitors and travelers and so on. Uh, several questions here relating to the budget and, and the U.S. contribution to uh, global health. Uh, let me try to summarize them uh, in my own words. Uh, you know, if the budget is going to be cut, uh, what part would you cut first? Uh, and then a related question, uh, if the uh, government budget is cut, uh, do you think that might uh, stimulate more uh, private monies uh, coming into global health? 
Let me take the second one first. Uh, other than the Gates Foundation, there's really no private player out there on the field right now that can even begin to match the kind of money that's coming from the U.S. government at the moment. So, I mean, sure, we could ask every American to please reach into their pocket and pull out $5. It's not likely to happen. Uh, so I don't believe that the private sector is prepared to offset. Indeed, our corporate giving has gone down. Uh, so the major corporate donors, particularly from the pharmaceutical industry, that we're helping in global health are walking away from the field. As far as what would I cut, what I would look for, and I know that indeed the Obama administration is doing this, is greater and greater efficiencies. Um, one of the smart moves the Obama administration made was to create what this thing I refer to, the GHI, or the Global Health Initiative. And the idea is to take what had been um, a really anarchic mess involving about 48 different agencies in our federal government that were, you know, running things called global health programs all over the world and consolidate it down create a coherent leadership overall, and force all these agencies to work together and to try to create as much efficiency in their spending and as low an overhead as possible. One big thing that is a huge change between the Bush initiative and the Obama initiative is when, when Bush set out to you know, extraordinarily expand the amount of support the US gave to global health, as I said, it was it was an emergency. It was stated as an emergency and it operated that way. So there was just this explosion of uh, monies and spending without a lot of conscious effort to make it accountable and efficient and you know, as, as smart a way to spend as possible. And most of it was put through contractors, whether it's a small NGO, a faith-based organization, a church working overseas, uh, a famous large uh, overseas operator of some kind. And each step of NGO took their cut off the top. And so what you saw was that, you know, the taxpayer thought $7 billion for global health meant $7 billion went down here where it was needed, but actually it was $7 billion slice six billion slice, 5.5 billion slice, and by the time you got down to the ground, people were saying, well, where is it? What happened? So the Obama administration is cutting a lot of the, in the intermediaries out. Um, a lot less money is going through contractors. A lot more is being executed directly on a government-to-government -government basis between U.S. government expertise and recipient government expertise. And I think that they can even better improve that efficiency, and we could save a lot of money. Um, you know, there could be uh, easily 500 million to a billion dollars worth of savings through greater efficiency, integration of services, consolidating the programs, and creating greater strategic vision of what we're trying to do. And that is underway right now. 
let me combine a couple of questions, and this will be the uh, last uh, questions for you. Uh, it seems that a shortage of healthcare workers is evident. With the existing cost of healthcare and the rising cost of healthcare workers, uh, what solutions exist that are practical during the financial crisis? And then, you know, this question asks education. Another question asks, you know, what is the role of education in solving these problems? I testified before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee uh, last year and said, look, shame on all of you that we're dealing with our healthcare worker uh, deficiencies, our lack of, especially of enough nurses, by robbing them from poor countries that already have insufficient numbers themselves. We have a high unemployment problem. We have state budgetary crises. We should be better subsidizing nursing, doctor, dentist, pharmacist, lab technician, and health management training for our unemployed labor force right here inside the United States so that they fill the ranks of our hospitals, clinics across the United States. Uh, and health providing companies, particularly for-profit health providers, that are trying to cut costs by recruiting nurses from the Philippines and doctors from India should do some serious soul searching. What are you building in the long run? You're depleting the healthcare worker supplies in those countries and most of those people will stay for only a limited amount of time until they raise enough money for their family to build a house back in Manila or whatever it is and then go home. Now, I know that a lot of recipient countries are actively supporting this kind of crazy way of uh, doing things in the rich world. By the way, Canada's much worse. Only 27% of Canada's MDs were Canadian trained. Uh, the UK, you can walk around the hallways and hear in some um, United Kingdom hospitals, hear more KwaZulu uh, Natal spoken, I mean, uh, Zulu spoken and COSA uh, spoken than English. Um, so they've actively recruited from South Africa. I was in the Bahamas uh, visiting a nursing school there and the head of the nursing school was almost in tears telling me that virtually her entire graduating class of the largest nursing school for the Caribbean, for rich and poor countries alike in the Caribbean, had been recruited to the United States. So. Bahamian taxpayers trained our nurses. What's right about that? Doesn't make any sense at all. So uh, I think we need to really reconsider this game. Now, when I say that, it sounds easy, but we, you know, it comes down to such stupid things as um, the House Foreign Relations Committee never meets with the committee in the House or the Senate that runs the education budget. And they never meet with the, the state committees and the state legislatures. So you can't just overnight say, let's make the money filter down so that the state of Michigan, with its record unemployment, is in a position to train more of the former auto workers to be nurses. It's not as simple as that in our country. It's a very complex problem. But it starts with some leadership at the top saying, this is what we need to do. And I haven't heard that leadership. Join me in thanking Lori Garrett for her lecture. <laughs>